Faith, family, freedom, hope, and opportunity. You're listening to Freedom Rings. I'm your host, Senator Marsha Blackburn. Welcome for another Freedom Rings. I'm Marsha Blackburn, and I am so pleased that you are joining us today. One of the things we hear so often from our podcast viewers is that they love the stories where we're bringing women to the forefront. And they're getting to hear these stories of how women have made their way in the world and have fought to protect freedom that really involves them in their daily lives. And today's guest, Morgan Ortegas, probably a familiar name to you all. And Morgan, we're delighted to have you join us today. Thank you so much. Well, thank you for having me. I'm excited. It's always good to be with Marsha Blackburn. Well, it is (laughs) good to be with you. Now, let's uh, talk about this. You grow up in Florida. Yes, ma'am. And you develop an interest in politics. You started out with music and the arts. Mm -hmm. And then talk about how that transition happened for you. Well, I come from very humble beginnings. Uh, my, my dad was actually the first um, generation in his family, maybe the first one to graduate from high school. Uh, I know his older brother eventually eventually did, but you know, my grandparents, my, fa- uh, my grandfather fought in World War II, of course, like many in that generation, had a fourth grade education. Um, and my dad often grew up, you know, missing missing meals sometimes for a day or two at a time as a kid, and in, in, incredibly poor. But has this amazing life story, of course, only here in America, of owning a small business, and he and my mom, you know, working and, and making it uh, making it work together, you know, all all of these years. Um, and so I I come from a family where all of the men, uh, for the most part, unless they had you know a medical reason. Uh, were, went into the military, so very heavy military family, and it was funny, you know, especially growing up in in the South. You know, most of the time you're you know you're with your mom and your grandma in the kitchen and with the ladies and learning things. And I was always in the living room listening to war stories. My twin sister and I were, you know, actually, and and I think they just thought we were peculiar children. <laughs> so um, my grandfather, my mom's dad, was uh, was a Marine, and and he was very interested in politics. He actually. Actually, when it was very rare for a white male, got lupus, and so uh, he was often, you know, studied, you know, from a medical perspective because it was so rare for him to have that disease. So that means actually that he was home a lot. He had to retire early and watched us a lot because my parents were working on the small business that I told you about. And my grandpa watched uh, CNN, right? At the time, and gosh, when I was a kid, that's whenever, I, I think Fox News eventually came around, but it might not have come around until after he after he passed away. But I remember watching C-SPAN 1 and 2 with him and CNN, and because uh, that was the only thing on TV at the time, right? That's when cable news just started. And uh, he taught us a lot about politics, about current events. And then I was, of course, simultaneously surrounded by all of these men in the military. And I just loved their war stories. I thought they were really interesting. So fast forward, 9-11 happened when I was in college. I was a sophomore in college, first semester sophomore. And I think like a lot of young people in your freshman and sophomore year, you have an idea of what you want to be when you grow up. I thought I wanted to be an opera singer, which clearly did not work out for me. (laughs) Um, But when 9-11 happened, I feel like all of those years, 
years of hearing the the war stories from um, from the men in my family, and and being raised around politics and current events really lit something within me. And I knew that I wanted to serve my country. I didn't exactly know how or what path I would take, um, but I knew I wanted to serve my country. And so I switched my major to political science, and the rest is history. So there you go, off into a political career. Mm -hmm. And as you embark on that career, you're carrying with you what freedom means to you. And your definition of freedom is centered around the men and women in the military Mm -hmm. that are part of your family, and you have heard their sacrifice, That's right. and you have heard their stories. So what really penetrated your heart as you listened to them? Was it their personal dedication, their mm. commitment, or the doors of opportunity that they were opening for you? What really resonated with you as you heard all that? That's a great question. I, I think it was you know, it was distilled in me what an honor and a privilege it was for mm-hmm. all of them to serve. Um, it was very sacred in my family, I think, to, to serve. And, and uh, you know, I remember uh, my uncle fighting in the first Gulf War in the Air Force. My aunt and cousins had to come back to Florida. I don't even remember what base they were stationed in at that point, but they came back to live with my grandma near us so that, uh, so that you know, everyone could help collectively raise the kids while my uncle was gone, uh, was gone at war. And, and I think it was just instilled in me from a very early age uh, that it's a privilege to serve your country, and, and especially in the military. I ended up for probably, I guess I was in government in some form for about 10 years before I ended up uh, direct commissioning as an officer in the military, in the Navy. So I ended up doing it late, but I'm still in the reserves. And every time I put on that uniform, uh, even just for a normal drill weekend, I'm reminded of the awesome responsibility that that I inherited. And I'm actually quite proud that I'm the first woman in my family uh, to serve in the military. And I hope uh, my daughter, my little baby, when she grows up, uh, that she gets to see me in that uniform and that she feels the same thing that I felt seeing all the men in my family serve. And that is really quite a remarkable story because not only have you served in the military, but you have served our nation at the Department of Treasury. And you also afterward went to the Department of State. Talk a little bit about what you did at Treasury with our financial freedom. And then let's talk about the more global picture with Department of State. You know, Treasury, working in the Department of Treasury was one of the most interesting things I've ever done in my career um, because there was an office, which you know well in your oversight in Congress, uh, the Office of uh, Terrorism and Financial Intelligence. And so you have uh, policy arm, you have intelligence, you have OFAC. Um, And what people may not realize is that the Treasury Department's a part of the intelligence community. And there you have dedicated analysts and people that are looking at the illicit financial flows around the world. So at that time, it was... uh I was there from like seven, I think, 2008 to 2012, something like that. I don't remember the exact years. But 
for the for the like four years that I was there, we were of course really focused at the time on the uh, uh, flows of of terrorism money to Sunni terrorist groups uh, like Al Qaeda, like ISIS in Iraq, which uh, or Al Qaeda in Iraq, which later became right. ISIS, uh, and and all of those groups were also very focused on Iran uh, on the Shia side, you know, as well. Um, and then I eventually went out to Saudi Arabia to be the deputy treasury attache for Saudi, and, and, and we worked for the whole region. That was 2010 and 11. And some really monumental things happened when I was there. Uh, the Arab Spring, for one, happened. We also got Osama bin Laden when I was there. So it was just sort of a crazy time to be serving at, at the U.S. Embassy. But I think, you know, for people who are listening, especially if there's some young people who are thinking about, well, how do I serve my country? What's the path? Uh, there's there's all sorts of interesting ways to do it if you want to go into government. And I think Treasury is a, is really special because it's small, it's bespoke, um, and it's looking at uh, all around the world. Obviously, the mandate has increased beyond terrorism now, and we're looking mm-hmm. at you know Russia, China, any rogue actors, and, and how are the financial flows um, – how are they helping, you know, whoever the terrorist right. group or the rogue state is? Because as everyone knows, in life, follow the money. That's exactly right. And so many times when we talk about protecting freedom on a global basis, the way we find the clues of where we need to be looking is through the money flows. Yeah. So having that experience at Treasury, Mm -hmm. then a door opens at the Department of State with Secretary Pompeo. Yeah, it was was a lifelong dream to be a spokesperson at the Department of State. And and I think, you know, you talked about what I did when I was younger in college. You know, I think if I, if I think back to my sophomore year in college when I switched my major to political science and started studying, if I would have thought 15 years later I would have been in that job. But I don't know if I would have believed it, right? Maybe in 30 years or something, but I don't know that I would have thought that I would have gotten there by 15 years. You know, it was an interesting point in my life because I was on a contract with Fox News at that at that point and I was enjoying being their national security analyst. And I knew going into government meant I was going to break, you know, a contract that a lot of people want, right? A lot of people want to work for for Fox News. Um, And I was, and I loved my colleagues and I loved working there. Um, But ultimately, I thought once again that I could not turn down the opportunity to serve, especially for Mike Pompeo, who I did not know, um, but I I knew from afar and had watched him as CIA director, was incredibly impressed uh, by him and by his worldview. And I got to tell you, for you know, for the last two years of the administration, I traveled the world with him, and he was very gracious in terms of including me in and almost all of his meetings uh, when we were traveling. And what an education for me! And I can't tell you the times that I wanted to whip out my cell phone and record. Not that we even had cell phones in the room, but I there was times, especially with the Russians or the Chinese, that I wanted to so badly mm-hmm. because he was so strong in defense of America. First of all, he always stood up for President Trump. And sometimes, especially the Europeans, might try to make a little quip about the president. And I'm sure that there are other people that would sort of laugh and go along with the joke. He didn't smile, right? He didn't think it was funny. And he stood up for the president. He stood up for our country. He made absolutely no apologies for this great nation. And that's the one thing that I wish um, the whole country could have seen of how proud they would be of their secretary of state standing strong and standing firm for America. 
So when you think back through these experiences that you have that you have had and you have seen this fight for freedom up close mm-hmm. and personal, what really causes you to say, yes, I can go fight for this another day. This impacted me so. I can go mm-hmm. and I can make this fight. God, there's so many there's so many poignant and compelling moments, but I would say that it's hard to top the Abraham Accords. Okay. Uh, as many of your listeners will know, we went 26 years, I believe it was, without any sort of peace agreements between Israel and Arab states. 26 years. We made no progress. Republicans nor Democrats. No one made any progress. And um, as we started negotiating uh, with Israel and with uh, UAE and Bahrain were the first two to go, were mm-hmm. the first two to join. And, and uh, I was talking to Jared Kushner and Avi Berkowitz at the White House. And as it looked more and more real uh, that it was going to happen, it was just one of those moments where you just sort of have to sit back and go, wait, is this really happening? Right? Because people go their entire careers uh, working in the Middle East, working on Israeli uh, issues without getting this sort of monumental achievement. And then not just, you know, we get UAE and Bahrain, and then all of a sudden uh, Morocco and Sudan, right? And all these other countries are, are even if they're not uh, going into Abraham Accords, they're starting to cooperate behind the scenes, you know, with Israel. Um, and, and by the way, this stuff doesn't just happen out of the blue. It happens because we totally took the policy uh, that President Obama had pursued for eight years in the Middle East, and we reversed it. We said, this is quite simple, right? Everyone overcomplicates foreign policy. And I try to tell people, it's, it's actually not that complicated. We have a country uh, called the Islamic Republic of Iran, who happens to be one of our greatest enemies and happens to be, according to the State Department, multiple administrations have certified this. It's not a partisan thing. They are the world's leading state sponsor of terrorism. Uh, they threaten Israel, one of our greatest allies. They also threaten the Gulf Arab states. Not just threaten, I mean, they actually give money and weapons to proxies who attack innocent, mm-hmm. uh, as you know, innocent people in Saudi uh, on a weekly basis, it feels like, Iraq as well with the Shia militias. So we just looked at it and said, so we have one big bad guy over here who's an enemy, and then we have all these other friends that they're trying to attack. So we're not going to give the bad guy billions of dollars to harass our friends. In fact, we're going to empower our friends. We're going to move the capital, excuse me, move the embassy to Jerusalem, its rightful home according to U.S. law, as you know better than everybody. And and we are and we're going to empower our friends. We're going to strengthen our friends and we're going to punish our enemies. I don't know why this is such a novel concept in foreign policy and people who think they're incredibly smart couldn't grasp this. And after four years of those policies, well, what happens? You see the Arabs and the Israelis start to come together and say, you know what? We may have not made the progress yet that we want on peace between the Israelis and the Palestinians, but it's time for us to move forward. And I got to tell you, when I went to UAE, when I went to Abu Dhabi and Dubai, I have never seen people and media so excited about something. I mean, they were more excited than we were. It was amazing. And, and what I can't get over, what I remind myself every day, uh, is that little Jewish children uh, and Christian children and, and Muslim children in Israel and Muslim children in UAE will grow up and in Bahrain and, and throughout the Middle East, they're going to grow up with an entirely different Middle East than the one 
that we all grew up with. You know, my daughter, we're Jewish, my daughter is not going to have to hide her religion whenever she goes to a Gulf state or to an Arab state. Uh, she can be proud of who she is because her mom had a really small part, but a part, but a very small part in creating peace in the Middle East. And so you could say what everyone about Trump about and Trump and Mike Pompeo, that accomplishment lives on in history. I think you're so right about that, and it is so significant. So you have fought for freedom in the military. Well, I haven't deployed yet in the, the military, but thank In you. the commercial <laughs> sector and yeah. in the public sector. So when you look at the problems that the world is facing today, what is your greatest concern? I, I mean, it, 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 if you have to rank them, I think it comes down to the CCP, the Chinese Communist Party, because mm -hmm. uh, they have global ambitions that they hid for you know three or four decades, and, and they're now very open about this. Um, the Chinese want a world order that benefits them, that benefits the Communist Party, right? They do things like call the leader of their nation, uh, Xi Jinping, they call him President Xi. Well, I refuse to call him that. There, he wasn't elected, you know, he wasn't elected mm -hmm. by the Chinese people within the Politburo, maybe. But, you know, he's the chairman of the Chinese Communist Party, right? And they try to, they try to hide those things. They've tried to hide their ambitions. And uh, what we've really seen is for years and years and years, people in U.S. corporations among them wanted to do business in China. And there was this total group think in Washington in both political parties. So I'm not picking on one, but there was this total group think in Washington that China was inevitably going to rise economically and overtake us in the world. And so uh, this was the central thesis, I think, of the second term of the Barack Obama administration. So what he wanted to do was to manage America's inevitable decline while we watched China rise and figure out how to do how to manage that decline peacefully. Well, in the Trump administration and through people in the Senate who supported us in the House, like yourself, uh, we just said, "Yeah, no, we do not buy into that theory because we don't think that there is a way to manage peaceful American decline." In fact, if you don't have uh, uh, Western and Indo-Pacific democracies and allies and friends stand up to the Chinese Communist Party, that's what creates conflict. This is what many people on the far left get so wrong. Uh, appeasement and pacifying your enemies doesn't create peace. It actually just creates more conflict in the long term because it emboldens your enemies. So uh, listen, I have, I have no beef with the Chinese people. In fact, Two of Mike Pompeo's most senior advisors are Chinese Americans uh, on China issues. These are people that grew up under the communist regime, so they knew it better than any of us, right? Even people who had who had worked, uh, you know, Americans who had worked at the embassy in Beijing and who and who spoke Mandarin, uh, they could never understand China the way these two could. And I think that there are Asian Americans around this country, especially people from Vietnam and the Philippines, that understand what it's like to live next to communism. Uh, and, and how harassing and scary that is. And they are more freedom-loving than anybody, right? They're mm -hmm. sort of similar to right. Cuban-Americans because they understand what that tyranny is like. And we need to learn from them and we need to wake up. That's right. People who have lived under tyranny right. are the ones who are stepping to the forefront right now and saying, America, you better wake up. That's right. This is what is happening to you. Well, thank you so much for sharing your story. And thank you for joining us. And you're going to find Morgan Ortegas on social media and keep up with us at Freedom Rings.
Thank you for listening to this episode of Freedom Rings. You can follow me on Twitter at Vote Marsha, Facebook at Marsha Blackburn for Senate, and on Instagram at Team Marsha. And you can always find us online at MarshaBlackburn.com. The Freedom Rings podcast is edited and produced by Jared Cummings. Executive producers are Conservative Partnership Center and Marsha Blackburn. Together, we make Freedom Ring.